I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. This was a week of the impeachment inquiry. This week, Democrats and Republicans called their witnesses. We watched in the House, live on television, testimony after testimony. And two things struck me about these testimonies. One is that while we learned a lot of new details and we had confirmation of other details, we didn't actually change the nature of the story. What Donald Trump did is what he was initially alleged to do by the whistleblower. It's what he more or less admitted to doing in the call record his own White House released and then in the statements he made on television when he asked Ukraine and actually China to investigate Joe Biden. The story of this week has not been what Donald Trump did. It's been what will congressional Republicans accept and even defend. The striking thing about this week has been how little of the testimony, much of it coming from Republican appointees or civil servants who have served under Republicans, much of it coming from people who are trying to carry out Republican foreign policy and being blocked from doing so by the Trump administration, how little of it seemed to land with Republicans and how many Republicans on the committee joined in the effort to explain it away. I'll occasionally get a note on this podcast saying, I like the podcast a lot. I wish it were a little bit more balanced. I want to say this clearly. The reality here is unbalanced. The way Republicans are approaching these hearings is not as a fact-finding mission, but as an exculpatory exercise. I would like to be balanced. I would like our system to be balanced because the way our system is built, it does not work if it is imbalanced. But that fundamentally is what this week's episode is going to be about exploring. Because there's a lot to say about what we've learned about Donald Trump here, but there's much more to say about the imbalance in the system. More than anything else, that is what was on display this week in the hearings, and that is what is going to shape and drive not just this process, but the country going forward. So that is what this week's episode is really going to be about, not exactly what Donald Trump did, though we will talk about that and what we learned there, but what we are seeing in the Republican Party, because that is what will shape this process, but also shape American politics in the years to come. We're going to start with my colleague, Andrew Prokop, and what happened this week. But after that, I'm going to move to Thomas Mann, who is a longtime expert on American politics. He's at the Brookings Institution at UC Berkeley. He is the co-author, along with Norm Ornstein, a pretty important book that came out a few years ago called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, in which Mann and Ornstein, who had built over years and years and years more credibility than anybody in the game for their balanced commentary on Congress. They were experts who were feted and listened to and invited to address members by both sides. And they came out and said, the Republican Party has become something different. The Republican Party has become the problem. And that was a controversial diagnosis at the time they offered it, but it has become a consistently displayed reality of what our politics is like every day since. And so Thomas Mann will join me to talk about what we are seeing with the Republican Party and what asymmetric polarization towards the system itself means for the future of American democracy and for the impeachment process. But we start today with Andrew Prokop.
Andrew Brokop, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this was a big week. It was the biggest week yet. We had three days of hearing, uh, nine witnesses this week, meaning we've had 12 witnesses overall. And it's actually not clear if there will be any more hearings, at, at least in Schiff's Intelligence Committee, after this. Right. So right now, this is all of the public inquiry we're scheduled to get. Yeah. Nothing else is on the calendar so far. So there's a, a lot to dive into here, but let's start with what was really the marquee testimony this week, which was EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. And he came in and threw a lot of people under what turned out to be a pretty big bus. And l- let's start with this clip of him talking about an email he sent, which shows how many people actually knew this scheme was going on. I talked to Zelensky just now. He is prepared to receive POTUS's call. We'll assure him that he intends to run a fully transparent investigation and will turn over every stone. He would greatly appreciate a call prior to Sunday so that he can put out some media about a friendly and productive call, no details, prior to Ukraine election on Sunday. Chief of Staff Mulvaney responded, I asked the NSC to set it up for tomorrow. Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Everyone was informed via email on July 19th, days before the presidential call. So what are we hearing there, Andrew? So I think the context here is that Sondland was widely viewed among Democrats as the least credible witness they had heard from in the closed door phase of the inquiry. Some were even raising questions about whether he had perjured himself. He claimed not to recall many things. Uh, Other witnesses and documents seemed to contradict a lot of what he said. And he had already submitted an addendum to his closed-door testimony saying, oh, now he did, after all, recall telling an advisor to Ukraine's president that they probably wouldn't get their military aid unless they announced the investigations Trump wanted. So the big question going into the Sondland hearing was, would he recall some other things? And I think he did, but the nature of what he added to his previous accounts is also worth zeroing in on because he gave a lot of information that was new about what other Trump administration officials knew about this whole saga, about this effort to get the Ukrainians to uh, announce investigations. He mentioned Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He mentioned a conversation he had with Vice President Mike Pence. He mentioned, as we just heard, an email he sent to acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. So I think he was trying to get the heat off himself and, uh, you know, say, hey, there are a lot of other people who haven't really come forward to say what they knew. Democrats were pretty thrilled by his testimony, if only because it shredded a lot of the idea that this was a rogue Gordon Sondland operation, which had become one of the Republican talking points. Um, Your read of it, which I think has been closer than a lot of people's, is that Sondland is still playing a little bit of a game here, particularly a game trying to protect himself. Do you want to talk about that dimension of it? Yeah, so I think, you know, on the surface, what Sondland said uh, can be 
fairly viewed as quite bad for Trump and the administration. He openly admitted that there was a quid pro quo involving a White House meeting in exchange for investigations. He said he was following the president's orders at uh, trying to carry this out. And as just mentioned, he implicated all these other administration officials in this as well. But I think there were some parts where he was still quite vague and, uh, shall we say, forgetful. Particularly, this relates to the topic of the military aid that was withheld from Ukraine by Trump's order. I think of this as the second of the two quid pro quos here. The first was the White House meeting in exchange for investigations. And the documents and testimony from other witnesses show that that really was the thing that was being discussed through July and August. However, then in late August, the Ukrainians became aware that Trump was holding up this hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid because of an article in Politico. And then the documents show they freaked out. And after that, Gordon Sondland met with this Ukrainian presidential advisor and said, the aid probably depends on whether you announce the investigations. And there are a whole lot of documents, text messages, and uh, other witness accounts from the week or so following this that seem to suggest that Sondland was saying he was in close contact with Trump, he was doing this at Trump's request, and Trump wanted those investigations. Trump kept saying there was no quid pro quo, but he also kept saying, I want President Zelensky to just make an announcement on the investigations, not even to necessarily do them. But Sondland really could not recall any of this. The only call with Trump that Sondland admits to remembering came a little after this on September 9th. And in Sondland's telling, in this call, he asked Trump, what do you want from Ukraine? And Trump said, I want nothing. There's no quid pro quo. I just want Zelensky to do the right thing. And that seems to conflict with what a lot of witnesses heard from Sondland in the days before this call happened. And, and he says he can't even remember whether he had other calls with Trump in this time span. So, you know, I'm still a little skeptical about his story here. Republicans are zeroing in on one, that call, which comes after this begins to come out in the press. Um, so a lot of Democrats feel that call is kind of cover up by Donald Trump. Republicans say it just shows that he was doing nothing untoward. But the other thing you heard a lot from them in their questioning of Sondland is, well, Burisma. I mean, who's to say that meant Joe Biden? And one of the weird things about that testimony is that Sondland keeps saying that he had no idea that Burisma meant Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Um, the Republicans keep pushing this idea that Donald Trump was interested in Burisma for reasons that had nothing to do with Biden. But then when you look at the White House's own call record, when Donald Trump talks about Burisma, he repeatedly mentions, if I'm remembering correctly, Joe Biden's name eight times. And so there's a very weird dimension of this testimony where the clips Republicans were creating for Facebook were about this idea that Burisma and Biden is a linkage drawn by Democrats out to get the president. Gordon Sondland was more or less playing into that. But Donald Trump's own words belie that. And I found, I found that a very frustrating part of the hearing. Yeah. So this was the other big part of Sondland's testimony that I found extremely dubious. He claims that he was not even aware that the Biden family had any connection to this company Burisma that Trump wanted investigated until, well, he can't exactly remember when he became aware of it. He just says it, it was very late. And, you know, this conflicts with 
as you just said, what Trump told the Ukrainian president in the phone call. He directly framed this as an investigation of Biden and his son. Uh, It conflicts with what Rudy Giuliani had been saying again and again in media appearances and on Twitter for months and months and months. He kept calling this an investigation into Biden's and, and Biden corruption. And it also conflicts with what two separate witnesses have said about Gordon Sondland himself. There was one witness, uh, David Holmes, uh, embassy official in Kiev, who said that he saw Sondland call Donald Trump at a restaurant. And then immediately after the call was over, Holmes asked Sondland, does Trump care about Ukraine? And Sondland answered, I think he only cares about big stuff like the investigation into Biden. Then there's also Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who recalled that at a tense July 10th meeting at the White House with um, Ukrainian officials and American officials that Sondland brought up investigations. And Vindman said Sondland specifically mentioned Biden, the name Biden. And so, you know, we have two witnesses saying Sondland called this Biden. Uh, We have Trump's words on the call. We have Giuliani's public statements. And Sondland claims he was just completely unaware of any relation of Biden to this whole thing, which is, I, I don't know, it's it's very tough to believe. That's probably a good bridge to some of the other testimony of the week, much of which came from career civil servants uh, and was very powerful, I thought. Let, let, let's begin with a clip. At the one in-person meeting I had with Mayor Giuliani on July 19th, Mayor Giuliani raised and I rejected the conspiracy theory that Vice President Biden would have been influenced in his duties as vice president by money paid to his son. As I previously testified, I have known Vice President Biden for 24 years. He is an honorable man and I hold him in the highest regard. It struck me one yesterday when you put up on the screen Ambassador Sondland's emails and who was on these emails and he said these are the people who need to know that he was absolutely right because he was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy. And those two things had just diverged. So that was Ambassador Kurt Volker and uh, national security official Fiona Hill. Andrew, what did you take away from the other testimony this week? So the other witnesses were interesting in that Some of them, um, like Fiona Hill, were requested by Democrats, but a few of them were actually called by Republicans, and Volcker was in that number. Volcker was the U.S. special representative to Ukraine, and he was one of the three amigos along with Sondland. And Republicans called him because they, I guess, thought that he didn't seem as bothered by what was going on, what he was involved in uh, initially in his closed-door testimony in this effort to pressure or get the Ukrainians to do these investigations. But, you know, when he actually showed up, he debunked a lot of their talking points. He said that Vice President Biden, there's no sign at all that he was corrupt in any way in his effort to um, – oust a Ukrainian prosecutor general back during the Obama administration. Then we heard from Fiona Hill. She was a witness requested by the Democrats, but, you know, she was serving on Trump's National Security Council. She was very eloquent in kind of slicing and dicing a lot of what the Republican members of the committee were posing to her. She basically just laid it out right there that she was involved in actual policymaking towards Ukraine, but then there was another channel that was involved in a domestic political errand. 
And that is something that she found very uh, troubling and damaging. What's striking to me about Fiona Hill's testimony and the testimony of a couple of the witnesses this week is that I don't want to say this was their intention, but what they were doing, what they were laying out in many ways should have split Republicans from the president in that their argument is that I was here carrying out Republican foreign policy, carrying out the traditional Republican foreign policy towards Ukraine, towards uh, containing the expansionary ambitions of Russia. And then my foreign policy, the foreign policy all of you here on the committee have been putting forward for years, was being handicapped or stymied or disrupted by this alternative mechanism of policy run by Giuliani and Sondland and others that was leveraging Ukraine, that was potentially empowering Russia uh, in order to further Donald Trump's domestic political ambitions. Did that seem to have any resonance with Republicans on the committee? Not really. I mean, the Republicans, again, seem to have seen their job at these hearings as defending Donald Trump. And, you know, there was from time to time uh, a mention of the importance of supporting Ukraine, or I think some of them preferred to dwell on the fact that the aid was eventually released uh, to make the argument that, hey, there was no harm, no foul here. You know, the aid is good. Trump held it up briefly, but, you know, it went through without the Ukrainians delivering on the deal. So so nothing untoward happened here, basically. But a lot of the witnesses kept dwelling on how this would send signals uh, to Russia that the U.S.'s support for Ukraine was maybe not as strong as they felt it should be. And it was kind of interesting that Generally, it it was the Democrats on the committee and these witnesses who were now voicing such unified support of this policy of sending weapons to Ukraine. And in part, that's just because this was the policy that was approved by the U.S. Congress. Ukrainians were expecting and Trump tried to withhold it for political gain, it appears. But yes, there was this kind of larger agreement between the Democrats And a lot of the witnesses who were a mix of career civil servants and foreign policy professionals and um, uh, less so among the Republicans. On the Republican committee, Devin Nunez has been starting and ending hearings with sort of long recitations of the Republican counter narrative or almost counter reality, as it might better be called. Uh, Jim Jordan has been putting himself forward as a very strong defender of Donald Trump. Some of that was expected. But there have been some other players who I think are the kinds of Republican members of Congress Democrats were hoping against hope to peel off. Um, People like Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Congressman Will Hurd, who are understood to be more moderate Republicans, who represent more moderate districts, who were, were thought to be potentially targets who would be appalled at the president's behavior and might ultimately come together with Democrats. And, and Heard was a particularly interesting case because he represents a quite purple district and he's retiring. So he's somewhat freer to vote his conscience and many other Republicans who might worry about a primary challenge. But even Heard seemed to be pretty lockstep by the end of it. Um, I, I think this clip of him is one of the more important moments of the hearings. So why are we here? Because of two things that occurred during the president's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. The use of the phrase, do us a favor, though, in reference to the 2016 presidential election and the mention of the word Biden. I believe both statements were inappropriate, misguided foreign policy, and it's certainly not how the executive, current or in the future, should handle such a call. 
Over the course of these hearings, the American people have learned about a series of events that, in my view, have undermined our national security and undercut Ukraine, a key partner on the front lines against Russian aggression. An impeachable offense should be compelling, overwhelmingly clear, and unambiguous, and it's not something to be rushed or taken lightly. I have not heard evidence proving the president committed bribery or extortion. So that was striking. The way Heard lays out what happened here, that it was wrong, it was betraying our foreign policy, that it was potentially betraying an ally, that's a lot. And he says, yeah, but maybe not impeachable. I mean, not compelling and clear. And it was a really selective way to almost minimize the facts. You heard him start off by saying this is really just about two things Trump said on a phone call favor and Biden's. And it's really about much more than that. It's about a months-long pressure campaign on the Ukrainians, first in exchange for a White House meeting, second by withholding military aid. And um, so, so, yes, it's far broader than what he was admitting. But he sort of got these what felt like pro forma criticisms of Trump out of the way before eventually going around to the idea that you know, he hasn't really seen anything quite so bad. He hasn't seen anything overwhelming or blatant or anything like that. And and it sounds like, you know, he was probably one of the main possible Republicans who were in the mix for potentially voting for this thing. And we should mention that though he is retiring, it's it's not necessarily clear that he's leaving politics forever. There's been chatter he could run for something else down the road. But the fact that he is now signaling that he's not on board with this impeachment push is probably a sign that um, the Democrats will get very few Republicans, if any at all. It, It could just be zero Republicans voting for impeachment when they finally get around to it. And this is a way in which Stefanik also seemed interesting to me. I mean, at least Stefanik is one of the youngest members of Congress. She was a staffer for Josh Bolton, who was George W. Bush's chief of staff. So she very much comes out of the establishment Republican part of the party. And she's ambitious. And you can look at someone like her and look in her behavior and see, like, what are the incentives right now that are driving the Republican Party? Do 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 the Republicans who are young and up and coming, do they look at this and say, we need to show that we were against this? to be viable in the future, right? The, the, we think what is going to happen is people are going to look at this era in American politics as a terrible mistake, and those who stood against it are going to come out uh, as more noble um, and as more viable. Or is this Trump's party? It will remain Trump's party. And if you want to be viable in the future, you have to show that you stood with the president when it mattered. And it seems very clearly in Heard and Stefanik and others that you're seeing the latter case as their answer. Yeah, I think definitionally, these are people who want a career in Republican politics or potentially in Heard's case to continue with one down the road. And to do that in this day and age, they have calculated that you have to defend Donald Trump. He is overwhelmingly popular among Republican primary voters. And it is just simply it's the standard choice. If we do get somewhere down the road where there's been some sort of wholesale rejection of the Trump presidency by the American public, you know, it's hard to imagine how that would completely transform 
sentiment among the Republican voters who will continue to vote in Republican primaries and and, um, you know, influence the career paths of uh, Republican politicians as well. Andrew Brokop, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Andrew and I ended that interview talking about the few who could be called moderate Republicans. But more important, in truth, are the Republicans leading this process, your Devin Nunez's, your Jim Jordan's. I think it's worth listening for a moment to the Republican narrative and arguments that have defined their response to these hearings. Throughout these bizarre hearings, the Democrats have struggled to make the case that President Trump committed some impeachable offense on his phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. The offense itself changes depending on the day, ranging from quid pro quo to extortion to bribery to obstruction of justice, then back to quid pro quo. One thing they didn't count on was the president releasing the call transcript and letting us all see what he said. They didn't count on that. Transcript shows no linkage. The two individuals on the call have both said no pressure, no pushing, no linkage, but security assistance dollars to an investigation. You know what hearsay evidence is, Ambassador? Hearsay is when I testify what someone else told me. Do you know what made-up testimony is? Made-up testimony is when I just presume it. I mean, you're just assuming all of these things, and then you're giving them the evidence that they're running out and doing press conferences, and CNN's headline is saying that you're saying the President of the United States should be impeached because he tied aid to investigations, and you don't know that. That was Republican members of Congress, Devin Nunez, Jim Jordan, and Mike Turner. And in there, you're seeing the carousel of defenses. So Devin Nunez says quid pro quo, extortion, bribery, obstruction— the, the, the underlying charge keeps changing. Well, quid pro quo, extortion, and bribery, they refer to the same thing. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. And obstruction is an argument about what Donald Trump did to try to cover up the crime referred to by the first three terms. That's just an abuse of the English language by Devin Nunez. And the other arguments are similarly strange. The call record exonerates him when the call record is actually what kicked the entire impeachment process off by offering irrefutable evidence of what Donald Trump had actually tried to do here. Or that we're dealing with hearsay and made-up testimony when the people testifying are folks like Gordon Sondland, who had direct contact with the president on these issues. As I said at the top of this program, I think the question we are seeing in the impeachment process is really not what did Donald Trump do and when did he do it? I think that's what we're used to this question being. But we've known from the beginning. The call record laid it out, and we have known it every day since then. And while we've gotten more details and more confirmation, we've not substantially changed the story from that very first and overwhelming piece of evidence. But what has happened is we've seen the way the Republican Party reacts to the story and the way they're willing to defend and what they're willing to accept. And to me, that is actually the most important dimension of this, both because it is what will decide whether or not Donald Trump gets impeached, but also because we're seeing our system under stress right now. We are seeing what happens when a political party is faced with a choice between punishing wrongdoing on the part of its leader or protecting its leader because that is within its at least short-term political interests, even if that is going to permit things within the political system that are more dangerous. Years ago, the political scholars and particularly the congressional scholars, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann, released a pretty important book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. When they released this, it was controversial. Uh, It was already clearly true in many ways, but it was controversial. But the years that followed the election of Donald Trump and then watching this Republican Party 
defend Donald Trump in the way they have embraced Donald Trump in the way they have, including at the cost of their own past civil servants, including at the cost of their own past foreign policy, as we saw on stage at the hearings this week. That has affirmed their underlying diagnosis in a way I don't think even they could have expected. So I've asked Thomas Mann to join me to talk about asymmetric polarization, to talk about how we got here, and to talk about what it means for the system going forward. And he joins me next. Thomas Mann, welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you again, Ezra. So I think the story of the impeachment hearings is much more about what the Republican Party will accept than what Donald Trump did. We know what Donald Trump did. There's actually not much dispute over it. But the Republican Party's behavior in this seems to be the key question. So what have you seen watching them? I've seen exactly what I've seen for the last decade or more. Many people believe Trump disrupted our entire political system. And I don't underestimate his level of unfitness for office. But Donald Trump was able to get elected and more importantly, continue in office as a consequence of a Republican Party that uh, has become extreme and tribal and just absolutely captured by the broader changed ecology of uh, the GOP. Let's dig in on that a little bit. I think when people heard the argument about asymmetric polarization, which you and Norm Ornstein, I think, really pushed into the into the mainstream, people understand that as an ideological question, that they, they think of that as the Republican Party moving right and the Democratic moving left on policy issues. But I think what we're seeing is on another axis, actually around what kind of behavior is acceptable, what approach to liberalism and illiberalism is acceptable. So what is the story behind that kind of asymmetric polarization, separate from the question of what tax cuts you do and don't support? Yes, it's so important to move beyond the ideological extreme behavior and and positions on issues and the rest. Uh, Going back to it's even worse than it looks, we mentioned that, but the takeaway line is the Republican Party is scornful of compromise, unpersuaded by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. So it's getting at exactly what you're talking about. It's the system behavior. It's the, if you will, constitutional hardball. It's it's all of that behavior that would be problematic, whatever the ideological position the Republican Party happened to settle on. So give me the explanation for Devin Nunez. What is happening there when he gives these long windups full of conspiracy theories. The role he's playing in this is distinct and it's very important. And how do you understand the incentives that either produce Devin Nunez or currently shape his behavior? He's the prime example of the behavior of uh, Republicans in situations like this, uh, Earlier in the Trump administration, remember, he was uh, had to step aside from the chairmanship of the House Intelligence Committee because of charges of leaking uh, certain confidential information to people in the White House and employees of the president, private employees. Uh, So he's been in this all the way. 
it really goes back with deep roots in American history, but it was the beginning of the breakdown of Jim Crow in the in the 40s and 50s and culminating in many respects in the 1960s that began to profoundly change the coalitional bases of uh, of the parties you you know the democrats were deeply divided on race because of the southerners and republicans were divided as well but there were a, at least a substantial minority, if not majority, uh, of Republicans who were Lincoln Republicans, who were racial moderates and favored the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So coming out of that and then the decision of uh, Richard Nixon to follow advice on a Southern strategy uh, really produced the, the kind of elite partisan activist uh, phase of this, that was the beginning of the change in the coalitional base. And over time, minorities uh, sorted themselves into uh, the Democratic Party and those who felt aggrieved and shortchanged by all of this, uh, some racist, some not, found themselves in the Republican Party. So, but that was only part of what was going on. Then then it was the Christian right that saw an opportunity, uh, Paul Weyrich, uh, to make more headway in the Republican Party. Then it was Grover Norquist. And this was, I think, an absolute key part of this uh, was uh, the no new tax pledge for the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan and government is the problem. It sort of underscored the economic, corporate, plutocratic uh coalitional partner of the Republican Party and made it more prominent. So all of these sort of conspired to produce um, much more like-minded Republicans and Democrats separately, and the polarization took hold. And over time, they became more competitive and elections for the House and Senate meant something because it was control of the party and the like. But as part of that effort, and it took decades to evolve, um, I've mentioned some pieces of it. Uh, two things happened. One, New Gingrich happened, and, and he introduced a norm of uh, really demonizing uh, the Congress and its uh, leadership as, as corrupt and untrustworthy. And it was a war. And this was really weaponize the governing process in in our elections. It was all about winning the majority. And, you know, we'll talk about the rest at other times. It was incidental, but it was it was hateful. And those are the bad guys and we're the good guys. And it sort of introduced something into our politics. And then the the ecology of the party changed and there was organizations that uh, developed uh, the Koch network and the array of groups operating with the party, but outside of it. And of course, the conservative media, radio, television and cable and social media and all, all this came together. And some of that because of the the racial issue there and the interest of the economic cutting taxes and protecting corporations and uh, and the like, it came together in a party where loyalty meant everything, where 
identity of party was a summary identity for a whole set of cleavages in society that suddenly became aligned with party instead of being cross-cutting cleavages as the framers developed. So it it was cult-like. There was connections with uh, more extreme right-wing groups and individuals. Some of them got hearings. And Devin Nunes sort of came out of that world, grew up in it in Congress. And he believed virtually every conspiracy theory about the Democrats. But, but, uh, I mean, But let me hold on that yeah. for a minute, because... Like I want to, I, I had to do a lot of work on asymmetric polarization and thinking about your enormous work for for the book I'm writing, why we're polarized. Or I guess that I have written coming out in January. Pre-order wherever you get your books. <laughs> but part of the story you just told is a good story for sorting, right? It is a story of why the parties, which were mixed in the mid 20th century with conservative Dixiecrats and the Democratic Party and liberal Lincoln Republicans in the Republican Party. Why they sorted, right? right? And and they have sorted. It doesn't really explain why somebody like Newt Gingrich or later Devin Nunez took root in the Republican Party, why that was fallow ground for conspiracy theories, for kind of tactical escalation that doesn't quite have its match on the Democratic side. And this to me is the the, the key question of asymmetric polarization. It isn't like, why did the parties get further away from each other? Or even why did they develop the coalitions they did? You could imagine the same connections between corporations and the Republican Party and unions and the Democratic Party and so on with very different standards of behavior. But something happened on the Republican Party to what you read a couple minutes ago that it did become scornful of compromise. It did become more willing to cocoon itself in a very strange world of conspiracy theories and partisan theorizing and that led it to embrace somebody like Donald Trump. So why that part? Well, see, I think the coalitional change is a big part of the difference. Uh, that is, if all the white supremacists are uh, are gathered in one party and not across both parties, then it begins to attract individuals. Uh, so race is is a clear part of it. But the other part is, as uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson have written about, is plutocracy. That is, conservative parties across the the Western democracies uh, have for over a century had a dilemma. They inherently supported the business interests and people with resources who kind of ran the shop until uh, the franchise was extended. And suddenly they had to get elected under situations where the plutocrats can provide some of the money, but they don't have the vote. So they have to think about how do they how do they build it? And the Republican Party in this contemporary era, made a sort of key decision that the best route to maintaining a majority in the face of unfavorable demographic uh, projections and the and the rest was uh, basically to make a different kind of appeal. And the appeal was an, a populist appeal of resentment and outrage against the establishment and. That meant government and the people who controlled it. That was 
a decision that was made. That was an opportunity. That's the decision that was made in Germany in in the early part of the 20th century. The, The Tories in Britain made a different direction. They sort of accepted the fact that government would begin to sort of provide benefits to people and they would maintain the democratic system. But this was really very different. So I I see it in that way as the as the co- the, the efforts to build a coalition was to make fearful whites who saw themselves not doing so well economically and being hurt by people who were on the dole, uh, by religious traditionalists who were fearful of uh, their religion being demonized and taken away. And it came to be something else. The Democrats believe in government. They think it can solve problems. Mind you, they make their deals with the uh, people with substantial resources, but that's that's there as one part of it. Their effort was to appeal to the economic interest. And over time, uh, the racial minorities interest and a whole host of other liberal agenda items, but none of them necessitated, it seems to me, an embrace of an extreme part of the political spectrum. Throughout our history, We've had a radical right and a radical left. They've been around, but they've usually been marginalized. Uh, they came a little close uh, for a while with Goldwater. We, we saw them with Pat Buchanan and we saw them with George Wallace. So they're out there and they sometimes come close, but they never came, came this close to uh, actually controlling one of the major parties and and being a majority party in uh, in Congress. Uh, yeah, and something I want to note here is that if, if it sounds to people, if your back gets up a little bit when you hear a lot of talk of white supremacists in the Republican Party, I, I do want to note that if you've not looked at the reporting coming out about how much attention Stephen Miller pays to white supremacist websites and journalists and how that's become a direct line into the White House with one of Donald Trump's most influential advisors, Sometimes now just stating the facts of the situation clearly can sound almost like slander. But like those are the facts of the situation. There is a direct pipeline from white supremacist rags that would have been considered absolutely disqualifying to even <laughs> to, for anybody in government to be paying too much attention to. And now they they're they're, they're directly piped in. I want to push this to a broader question of the system. The Madisonian system Uh, its genius, as it's been described over history, is that it fractures power in a number of different ways. It fractures it across the federalist structure, right? You have a lot of power given to the states, but also across the separation of powers at the federal level. And ambition was meant to check ambition. And the way we would take care of a wayward president is that Congress would have its own institutional incentives and would want to conduct that oversight and would want to rein in or kick out an executive who had abused the powers of his office. Now, ambition cooperates with ambition as the parties cooperate across the different uh, across the different branches of government. So how is having a Republican Party like this changed our political structure? Is it something our political structure even has an answer for? Not a very effective one at this time. As I look forward, if Trump is removed from office or defeated in the next election, we remain uh with this problem, uh, with a, if you will, anti-system, radical 
in the procedural process terms as it's hard for me to see how that can work in our system. It's made so vivid by the Republican questioning uh, during the the impeachment hearings. It's just it's stunning to see uh, the worldview and the importance of holding holding to it. I mean, it's often stated that the word political party does not appear in the Constitution. The framers uh, worried about interest and talked a lot about them in the in the Federalist Papers, but they at least didn't uh, think it was wise to to include political parties. Remember, this was before the era of mass political participation. Um, And so they were fearful and they thought their system of creating these institutional checks and balances, as you've summarized uh, very well, and then creating incentives that would lead the occupants of those institutions uh, to create the checks in the face of somehow a demagogue or an autocrat uh, or someone who was really unfit and doing severe damage to our constitutional uh, system, we'd be able to take care of that. But if the party of the president is bound uh, to the individual and their institutional responsibilities play second fiddle, then then the institutions don't work. And, and remember, it, it's, it's happening in the federal system uh, throughout. And so my view is we now have an incredible mismatch between our constitutional system and, and the nature of the parties. That, that's the argument we made way back, and it's even worse than it, than it looks. And part of it is just the polarized parties, but a big part of it is the is the nature of the Republican Party. I mean, if we had a sort of European-style, center-right, conservative party, we'd get through this uh, because they would still have the capacity as maybe not a majority, but as in the Nixon years, uh, it was still the capacity of of individuals to have really quite distinctive views and not be living in constrained to act in a certain way. Even, I'm sorry to say, Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, he's he's the one moderate on the committee and he hasn't shown his hand completely, but I haven't heard him give evidence of any discomfort with the way in which the Republicans are uh, handling the system. So I think we have a huge mismatch and our system cannot work under these circumstances. It just cannot work. So we either need to replace the Republican Party or we need to change the system. Now, constitutional amendments are very tough, but it may be there are things that can be done legislatively and only if Democrats are in power. Um, one of them is is to have multi-member districts and create the electoral basis for a more multi-party system in which coalitions can be built afterward. It's very difficult. But what I'm suggesting to you is so many of the mechanisms that the framers created, the electoral college, the basis of membership uh, in the Senate, single-member districts that makes political geography play a tremendously important role, all of that in this environment 
during these times has created a non-majoritarian system. Uh, we call it minority rule. And that means that on a whole lot of central points, uh, a Republican Party and government can engage in behavior that's unpopular with the broader electorate, but they'll do it anyways because of the incentives they feel to proceed with a program and behavior in office that will uh, that will keep the loyalty of their donors and their voters. To, to show my own hand here, so when I had to, in my book, try to come up with an actual account of why do we have this asymmetric polarization? Not just that we do have it, but yeah. why do we have it? One of the answers that that I came to is that there is a immune system in the Democratic Party of democracy that is not shared in the Republican Party, right. which is to say the Democratic Party, because of the nature of the electoral geography you just laid out, if it wants to hold power, it needs to win center-right voters. It needs that in the House. It needs that very much in the Senate, where the average state is six points to the right of the average voter. And now do the way the Electoral College is shaken out, it needs that at the presidential level too. If the Republican Party was fully exposed to the consequences of its own actions, if it did not have a Senate majority because it has not won the Senate popular vote over the past um, three Senate elections combined, if it had not had the House, if it did not have the Supreme Court because of that, if it did not have the presidency because of that, because in both 2000 and 2016, it didn't win the popular vote, it would have reformed itself. Parties want to win power. It seems to me that one of the crucial dimensions of this era in politics is that the Republican Party can be the vehicle of a electoral minority that is becoming more desperate because it feels itself losing power because its geographic advantage allows that to maintain power. And thus, the, the, the normal incentives of the system to reform yourself along the lines that would win majority support have stopped operating. That seems to me to be a bigger part of all this than I think people give credit for. I agree completely with it. it. It's structural. You know, you don't need a personal biographies of individuals. They help you understand the texture of, uh, of what's been happening. But our problems are rooted in our Constitution, and it allows and encourages a conservative party in this case to uh, pursue actions and engage in behavior that in a genuinely majoritarian system uh, would not work and would require them to go in another direction. I think even with our structural disadvantages in that sense, um, it's possible over time. I mean, what if Texas and Georgia and North Carolina, uh, because of the changes and uh, increasing uh, Hispanic and African-American and young liberal professionals and, and so on, it could change the Electoral College to, to work to the Democrats' advantage. But at the present time, it, uh, it doesn't. It's, it's hard to see what you do about the Senate. I can see what you could do about the House in terms of trying uh, to get some kind of uh, multi-member system uh, with a form of uh, preference voting and proportional representation that begin to change it. But the underlying problem, you have it exactly right. Our constitutional system operating under these very unusual 
circumstances and times uh, make it possible for a very extreme party, and and not just policy terms, but sort of procedural terms, uh, to engage in activities that otherwise would not be uh, popular. You mentioned Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, and who are both great political scientists and have written a lot on asymmetric polarization, but also the, the, the structure of the system. And Pearson, along with Eric Schickler, who's also here at Berkeley, has written a series of papers recently right. about how the Madisonian system is under stress from the alignment of mediating institutions, things like the media, right. interest groups, uh, et cetera. Um, how they have become polarized. And he's, they've got a great line in one of the papers, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it from memory, but basically they say that in an era of polarization, the consequences of losing power become too great for a party to bear. That if the party, the other party becomes this different from you, demographically different, ideologically different, and then in identity so different, Right. And your level of competition and also fear of what they will do because their governing approach is so different that it raises the stakes of any given election or any given political decision so high that you can't sacrifice power for the good of the system because there are too many other equities at play. And that seems to me to be another way in which the Madisonian system is now under great threat, that the way we've built things like impeachment, they require a lot of cross-party compromise to be executed. But in an era when it would be so devastating to hand power to the other party, even if you don't like what your party is doing, even if you think, say, you're a Republican and what Donald Trump is doing is wrong, but you don't want Democrats with their Medicare for all and pro-choice Supreme Court justices and so on to get into power, then you end up with something that is less ridiculous than the behavior of a Devin Nunez, but is still a very powerful incentive to protect your own side from accountability because better to have a corrupt Republican than a um, than a Democrat of any kind. It's so important to include the stakes. The reason here is that it makes a difference now who's in the majority party. It's not that controlling a majority in one house or controlling the White House uh, alone can lead to X, Y, and Z, but but the differences on what will be pursued and what can be achieved, say in court appointments and uh, regulation or deregulation and, and who's taxed and how are guns controlled. Uh, those are big, big issues. And now that the majorities are up for grabs, the presidency is, it's, it's genuinely competitive. And Republicans, uh, after being out of power for 40 years in the House, have now demonstrated and taken advantage of the structural situation of the geographic spread of people who vote Republican. Uh, all of that has uh, really made a big difference. So high stakes as to what will happen if the other party wins and the genuine competitiveness, uh, not of individual seats, but enough to to make control of the majority a, a big difference. So it so increases the pressure on individual members. You got to do it for the party. And on the you're absolutely right about the differential nature of uh, of what 
Democrats have to do and how they have to appeal to to a broader constituency if uh, if they are to win power. Republicans uh, see the opportunities provided by these structural features of our of our system and um, and realize they can stay in power and at least get some of what uh, they want. You studied American politics your whole life. Are you confident that our system is stable on the 50-year time frame, given this mismatch between institutions and political parties? No. I'm worried. I'm not deeply pessimistic. But if we don't manage to change the nature of our second major party, given the two dominant two-party system, if we don't somehow change some of the structural features and the incentives, we're in for trouble. I mean, I, uh, Donald Trump kids, uh, about he's planning on serving 16 uh, years in, uh, in the White House. Uh, Republicans are so desperate to win back control of the House, but they have the Senate. And at least now they can fill the courts and the courts will then be an ally in, in maintaining their, their hold. So I'm very worried about it. I think the routes to change are not obvious, but they begin with the electorate. Uh, the uh, 2018 election was absolutely critical for at least slowing the process of autocracy I keep thinking that if Democrats had simply won the House popular vote by three percentage points in 2018, they would be in the minority. That's right. And none of this would be happening. Exactly. It took a big majority. It took this historic increase in turnout. I mean, a majority of people really sensed what was going on and they were concerned and they turned out and it made possible the checks that we are seeing now at least at the impeachment, if not the conviction stage. And that's a big deal. If Democrats were were to follow that up and win uh, the 2020 election, by winning, I mean the presidency and the two houses of, uh, of, of Congress, and it would still be very, very difficult. But if it could make clear to a majority uh, Seeing how votes are being suppressed and discouraged uh, is not worthy of our Constitution uh, and manage to beat history and actually hold their majorities in, uh, in the midterm elections and sort of propose a sort of reasonable set of actions that appeal to sort of broader electorates, and including um, some sort of frustrated Republicans, I could... I could imagine, and then the demographic changes uh, kicking in. I could imagine uh, Democrats uh, getting a more stable hold on government, but without structural changes, it's inherently unstable over the long haul. And the last thing we want is a one-party democratic system. I mean, we want if we're going to have two parties, uh, we need two pro-system parties willing to work within the constitutional system, accept the legitimacy of, uh, of the other party and at least be willing to engage in legislating as opposed to weaponizing it all the time. I mean, that's in my mind, that's our only hope. It, it's going to take a, a sequence of democratic victories uh, 
across the board and then projections of uh, one party democratic dominance to to begin to change the incentives. The Republican leadership in, in the National Committee after failing to defeat Obama in 2012 uh, were doing just that. They were coming up with a plan and uh, the plan didn't last long. It was thrown out. Bannon was sort of ostracized at that meeting. He was sort of off uh, in the outer hallways. But uh, four years later, uh, he was uh, king of the uh, of the meeting, uh, National Political Conservative uh, Committee and and uh, RNC. But that's why I'm not confident, because I don't think that string of electoral results is uh, is uh, necessarily the most likely uh, future for us. And I I worry deeply about the changes we've seen across the democratic world, the growth of illiberal democracies, the uh, forces used to discourage the opposition party. It's dangerous. And our and our constitutional system uh, uh, is not enough. The the most encouraging sign in these in these hearings is uh, is actually the the uh, public servants, the civil servants, the, the people who really believe in their oath to uphold the constitution, and the the newly franchised Democratic majority in the House are keeping us in the game, uh, keeping us in the game. But it's. Uh, Uh, The outcome is not determined. Thomas Mann, thank you very much. Thank you. The thing I keep thinking about watching these hearings, watching this process roll on, is that we're not facing one of the hard tests of democracy or of our political system. We're facing an easy one. Everything here is simple. It's easy to understand. It's affirmed by documentary record, by witnesses who have firsthand and secondhand knowledge, by people who are talking to the Ukrainians, talking to Donald Trump directly. And it's just a very clear abuse of power. Using the power of the presidency, both in terms of its ability to confer legitimacy by offering face-to-face meetings with other leaders and its ability to offer crucial military aid to a country under threat of being swallowed by Russia, using that power to force the investigation of your own domestic political rivals, no matter how justified you think you are in that, that is an abuse of power. It's not hard. We're not dealing with something ambiguous here. And we're not dealing with something as we have in past questions of corruption, where it's hard to figure out if the underlying thing happened. Again, Donald Trump's own call record shows that it has. So the question here is, in a case this clear, working, by the way, with a president who has always had a strained relationship with his own party, In a case this clear, with this kind of leader, at this moment in American politics, can we do anything about it? Are we capable of responding to it? And if you watch Republicans on these committees and listen to what they're saying, the answer is going to be no. I mean, we we see this one coming. And that's genuinely chilling. This is not so much a question of Donald Trump right now. At least we know a lot of what he's done, and at least we have an election coming. But it is a question of whether or not there's accountability in our politics ever going forward, whether or not we have any immune system against this kind of corruption. And what we're learning is no. I mean, God, imagine a president just a little savvier than Donald Trump. Imagine how 
utterly incapable we would be of bringing that kind of president to heel. There are two stories here that I think happened to throw a lot of light on this this week. One was by Ryan Broderick in BuzzFeed, and he made the argument that there have been two impeachment hearings unfolding. One is the one that a lot of us are watching on television, this fact-finding mission, this effort to find out what happened and how it happened and when it happened between Donald Trump and Ukraine. What was the exact status of the military aid? Who knew what when? The other is the impeachment hearing the Republicans are holding. And Broderick writes that that impeachment hearing seeks to create not just a counter-narrative, but a completely separate reality. Each round of GOP questioning is not meant to interrogate the witnesses, but instead to create moments that can be flipped into Fox News segments, shared as bite-sized Facebook posts, or dropped into Fortran threads. Their alternate universe, built from baseless online conspiracy theories and reading the tea leaves of Trump's Twitter feed, dominate Fox News and Facebook. When I earlier played that clip of Nunez and Turner and Jordan and mentioned that these arguments were ridiculous, like genuinely ridiculous, the point is it doesn't matter. They're not arguments at all in the traditional use of the term. What they are is little kernels of social media construction. You can wrap a narrative around them. And if all you're seeing is that, if there's nobody to say, yes, well, quid pro quo and extortion are the same thing. If there's nobody to say, yes, well, Burisma was linked to Joe Biden by Donald Trump repeatedly in his own words, in a document released by his White House. If there's no one to say that, then you never hear it. And so long as you can keep that part of the country that doesn't want to hear it, you're fine. This week, my colleague Sean Illing had an interview with Rich Lowry. And Lowry is the editor of National Review, a venerable conservative publication. When Donald Trump was running for president, National Review came out quite strongly with an issue entitled The Case Against Trump. And it was all about how Donald Trump um, is a dangerous threat, not just to the presidency, but to conservatism. And Lowry took a lot of heat for that. Um, And the National Review obviously did not succeed in its effort to stop Donald Trump from becoming president. But it was a a moment where you could see, you know what, there are boundaries on conservatism, at least the people who understand themselves as conservatives. They will not just accept anything. But over time, National Review has made its peace of Donald Trump. Lowry is out now with a book about nationalism in which he's, I would say, trying to put a more intellectual and universalist spin on nationalism so you can build something more conservative out of Trumpism. And in places it integrates with Trump and in places it doesn't. But Sean asks him, how have you changed your opinion so much here since that issue? And Lowry says in part, it's because Donald Trump gives us our judges and is a little bit more conservative than we thought. But then he says, and I'm quoting Rich Lowry here, the huge downside is that he, meaning Donald Trump, doesn't respect the separation of powers in our government. He doesn't think constitutionally and says and does things no president should do or say. But at the end of the day, we're asked to either favor Trump or root for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Mayor Pete, who opposes us on basically everything. So it's a pretty simple calculation. What is so striking about that is that on some level he's right. This is polarization. This is what it does to a system. When you need balance and when you need cooperation, but when you have this level of polarization where the other side is so different from you that the cost of letting them win power is too great to bear because you will lose too much, you will fear too much, you will find the policies and the personnel that they push forward too offensive to your vision of the good society, then you get into a position 
where you have to agree to anything, where there is no level of betrayal that is enough for you to say the system comes first. When Thomas Mann talks about Republicans as an anti-system party, he's certainly right on some level. Republicans are have built themselves in opposition to not just the federal government, but to the media, academia, a bunch of other key institutions that keep the American system in some semblance of balance. But he's also a little bit wrong in the sense that Republicans are an anti-system. What they are against is ever losing control of the system. And they will do what is necessary to keep that. And to some degree, in different ways, Democrats might as well. But we've not seen behavior quite like this from Democrats. And so I think that we have to take a step back on this, on impeachment, and just say what we're watching is not simply the impeachment of Donald Trump or even the eventual acquittal of Donald Trump. What we're watching is the American system tested and at least in any traditional measure failing that test. What we're seeing is we have no immune system, that there is nothing that cannot be justified. And even if it cannot be justified, I mean, my God, that's an indictment, doesn't respect separation of powers in our government, doesn't think constitutionally, says and does things no president should do or say. Even when you can't justify the behavior, the cost is still too great to impose accountability for it. And so that is to say we have a system in which accountability is incredibly weakened and in which any president can do anything they want so long as they can hold functionally a third of the Senate behind them. And given our fractured media institutions, social media institutions, probably almost any president can do that. So this has been a big week in American politics. But more than that, it's been a scary week in American politics. It's a little bit hard to come in and do this read at the end every week and just say, it's bad. It looks bad. What the Republican Party is doing is bad. But that's where we are. I would like this show to be balanced. I would like to be able to come to you and say that both parties are acting in honorable ways and doing honorable things, and they simply disagree on the size of government or optimal taxation. But that's not what we're seeing right now. There are questions in American politics that should properly be polarized. We are supposed to have great arguments about what policies the country should pursue, about what values our policies should be built on. We are not supposed to have arguments about whether or not you can abuse power in this way. But we're not even really having an argument about that. What we are showing is that you simply can abuse power in this way, so long as it is to one party's benefit to make sure you don't get held to account to it. That is truly chilling. Impeachment Explained is hosted by me, your host, Ezra Klein. Produced and edited by Jeff Geld, researched by Roger Karma, engineered by Cynthia Gill. Our theme music is composed by John Natchez, and our executive producer is Liz Nelson. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or send the episode to your friends. We'll be back next Saturday. <laughs>